If you turn to Mark chapter 9, um, we'll give me in verse 30 in your Bibles, or as one of my mentors likes to say, your phony Bible. Um, let's read the whole passage. We'll be in It's quite long. Mark 9, verse 30 to 50. And I'm going to read through the whole thing. They, the disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house, and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame with, with two feet to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That last verse, verse 49 and 50, some commentators have said is the most complicated verse in all of the New Testament. So congratulations that I get to cover that, right? I feel great about that. Um, and it's in that vein of complication that I want to begin this morning because I believe it's going to get to the heart of a passage that's hard to kind of combine and see a theme at first glance and to see where it's going, that complication I think can be overcome. And, and so I want to ask you a question about that first of all this morning, and that is this. Have you guys ever overcomplicated anything in your life, right? The laughter says, of course you have, right? Um, and I relate to that. I think I am the king of overcomplication. 
And I like this theme in one sense because one of my favorite TV shows, if you go back in the day, is the show 24 with Jack Bauer. I liked it so much, I named my dog uh, a Chocolate Lab in England. I named him Bauer after Jack Bauer. So 24 was one of my favorites. It's a spy thriller. And basically, the reason I'm sharing that this morning is that uh, in that show, what happens over and over again in small 24-hour periods in every season, that a terrorist bomb will go off, a betrayal amongst the spies will happen, crazy things will go on, and over and over and over again, there's one phrase that kind of ties it all together that he says, and he says, it's complicated. It's complicated. Like, what's going on in this day? It's complicated. Okay? And so, maybe that doesn't relate to you, per se, but something else does. So, untangling extension cords, right? That's complicated for me. I'm not a very handy guy, and so, like, that can be complicated. Um, my wife is a school teacher, and she says kids love to overcomplicate things. She gives an assignment. They're like, so, did you mean this? No, I told you I meant this. No, I told you I meant this over and over again, and so, like, she was, we were just reminiscing about that this morning, and we can overcomplicate things just like those kids, Kids, the wonderful thing about them, and we, we got to have a little object lesson ourselves this morning having a child in front of us. Thank you very much. Um, kids are wonderful in that they do two things. They can overcomplicate things, but at the same time, they can be refreshingly unlike us as adults and very humble and very open and very uh, teachable in many ways. And, and I want to talk about that because I think that I see in this passage a tying together theme that Jesus is there with his disciples and he calls them together. And you see this at the beginning, he puts the kid in front of them. And at the end, he basically says, the way I would interpret, and we'll get there to that last verse, he says, hey kids, get along, okay? Have peace with one another. Jesus here is taking his disciples as kids in this setting and saying, I want to show you a few things about what true faith is really like. And I think that the, the problem with the disciples and the problem with us is that we often overcomplicate things. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and of course we all know we like to quote C.S. Lewis here. He says this, young things ought to want to grow up. But to carry on into our middle life, this concern about being adult is a mark of arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret, and I would have been ashamed if, it had been found, if I had been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly, and when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Now, I, I wouldn't use his word childish. I'd say childlike. That's not that I'm one to criticize C.S. Lewis. But nonetheless, like, I would use childlike rather than childish. And I'd say that we have this tendency as human beings, as adults, to complicate things in our lives with our sin and with all sorts of things. And I, I can just guarantee that at some point this week, you guys, if you're married, had complications in your relationship because of the way that you interact, the way that you relate to one another. I mean, sadly, I can say as a pastor that um, I've seen people get so complicated and convoluted in their relationships that I've had to stand between a man and a woman in the midst of domestic violence and stop them from hitting each other. Or I've had to just counsel them and say, like, God, only you can bring some sort of untying thread in this relationship because I can't see it at all. That's sad, but it's true. And we do that as humans, and we see this element, I think, of uh, both a childlike faith 
and also a childish faith that the disciples are displaying in this text. That's what I think ties it all together. And I want to begin, uh, and my hope is in this, in this short talk, you can come to the point where you can see a little bit of good news in the midst of your complications, that really there is gospel clarity for us if we can listen to Jesus here. So let's go back over it. Let's start in verse 30 to 32 and see the transition of what's taking place from the last time we looked at the Gospel of Mark. Verse 30 to 32, he says this. The disciples went on from there. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where Jesus had shown himself in glory and the Father had said, listen to my beloved son, right? They went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. When he's killed, after three days he'll rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. And so Jesus is taking this journey. It's the last journey through Galilee before he goes to the cross in Jerusalem. That's where we are in the timeline of his ministry. And beyond that, as he does that, he's telling his disciples for the second time out of three, the same thing that he started in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He said, hey, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to the cross. Mark chapter 10, he's going to say the exact same thing. And so this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is this direction of Jesus, and it has a real hint in here of family problems as well, because he says he's going to be in the New King James betrayed, and we know who's amongst the family right now that's going to betray him, Judas, right? So here we are, the family of his disciples, his kids, so to speak, are traveling down this road. They're on a road trip with dad, and as they go, Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed into evil men's hands. Picture it, like I said, As the Old Testament, Deuteronomy says that Moses taught parents to instruct their children, as you go on the way, stop and teach them. Give them the reminders. Teach them the Torah, the law, as you go. And that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And that's why I think this really is a passage where we can say this theme of this childlike faith wraps throughout it. It's all related to their discipleship as the kids of Jesus. And here we go. Look at verse 32. It says that they didn't understand, even though he told them twice now, he's going to tell them three times, they didn't understand what he was saying about being killed. Isn't that just like kids, right? It's like, I told you, and I told you, and I told you, and I told you. It's like you don't get it yet sometimes. I told you to clean your room. Well, what I did was I walked around the house instead. I told you to wash the laundry. Well, I just, I threw them down the chute. Okay, I didn't quite wash them. This is what is happening here. They don't understand, and they were afraid to ask. Very much, I see uh, that we are like the disciples here. Perhaps some of the complications in our lives come because we don't actually want to understand what Jesus is saying to us. Perhaps when the father said, listen to my beloved son, we say like, okay, that sounds good in a way, but I I don't get it, or maybe I don't want to know. know, We've already said the disciples believed in the Messiah, Ben David, the Messiah of David who would come as a conquering king. They didn't understand and believe and want to believe in the Messiah, Ben Joseph, who would suffer. And so here we have them saying, I don't get it. Maybe because they don't want to. The implications. 
Um, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'm that way. I went this week and had an endoscopy. Congratulations, me. That's where they put a tube down your throat, and they look in your gut, and they see if they can find anything in there, right? And uh, I, I'll tell you the truth. I had a moment where I literally thought, like, I'm not going to go do this. I really don't want to go do this. And because... I, A, I don't know if I even want to find out the results if there's anything there in my gut that is bad, okay? Um, But in the end, I went. But that's the kind of heart. I see that in the disciples that they're just like, I don't understand. Maybe I don't want to understand. And in the context, it says that they were afraid. Why? Well, think about it. What just happened earlier in the story when Peter got this great revelation of Jesus the Christ, but then went on to tell Jesus he wasn't going to suffer? Jesus is like, hey, Satan, get behind me, right? And so, hey, they got rebuked, they got corrected, they got scolded like little children, and so they're like, you know what? I don't want to say anything at all. Can you see them here? They're like little kids afraid to tell their dad what they're doing and what they're thinking. So I'm putting before you this idea today that this passage is tied together by this theme of complications that are childish and Jesus instructing in a childlike faith that's true following of him. So let's look at this together. First thing I want to point out in verses 33 to 37 is that childlike faith is the way of humble kingdom service. Let's read that again. It says in verse 33, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took the child he put him in the midst and taking him in his arms said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So that's what childlike faith that Jesus is commending here. But here's the problem. I want to teach today as we start these each point in contrast with the complication that we see in the disciples. The complication that we see in them here is competitive self-importance, okay? Uh, And I'm sure you can see that because we all have it in us, right? They're in this heated discussion, and Jesus is like, hey, what are you arguing about? And, And it's just deadpan silent, right? They know what they were arguing about. Jesus, God, the Messiah, who's humbled himself, is right there in their presence as an example of humility. And they're like, who's going to be the greatest? Will I be? You can imagine Peter, like, man, he tends to put his foot in his mouth. He probably said all sorts of stuff. John, kind of mystical there, being like, well, you know, I'm going to write in my gospel later that that I'm the disciple who Jesus loves, so maybe that's me. Um, And all of these things, you can kind of picture them having this argument And notice that he uses this word, they use this word in their argument, who's going to be not great, not, hey, we're all going to be up there, we're we're a team here, not great, but who's going to be the greatest? This is like us saying, who's going to be the goat, okay? The greatest of all time. Is it Jordan or LeBron? Obvious. Jordan, come on, don't even, don't even say that. It is Jordan. Oh, got to clap for that, yes. Anyway, Jesus better than Jordan, but Jordan was the best basketball player of all time. I'm not going to argue with anyone about that here. (laughs) Who's the greatest of all time? Tom Brady or Tom Brady, sadly. Um, I have to admit that even though I'm not a Tom Brady fan at all. I'd like to say Joe Montana, but he has been surpassed. But here's the point. In all the laughter, the, the point is that they were literally saying, 
I'm going to be like Mike. I'm going to be the greatest of all time. The problem with that is that that is the problem of a self-inflated, self-important, competitive spirit that has nothing to do with the faith of Christianity, but all to do with our human weakness. So, Jesus says, whoever would be first, let him be the last. Here's the thing. Uh, the disciples, on one level, you can understand them. They're doing something that's very normal, right? It's normal for us to try to find our voice and our significance and our meaning in life. I don't think that Jesus, and I like the way he kind of twists it here, seeing even their pride and sin. He says, hey, you want to be first? Okay, be last. He takes this normal, natural thing of significance and finding our place in the world, and he turns it around to show them what it really should be like. But he's dealing with this attitude, and I think he does that, and he's showing us what childlike faith is because of their overinflated egos and really dealing with this hubris, dealing with this uh, self-importance. Tim Keller, in his um, book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he says that our ego, our pride, our self-importance is like a bellows. He takes it from the Greek word, and and he shows how basically we go up, and we're inflated, and we feel really good about ourselves, but we're empty with air. And then we go down, and we're deflated, and we're empty again. And whether you have an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, at the end of the day, you're empty because it's about you. And that's what he points out about the human ego, that we're always basing ourselves off one another and trying to compete, and that's the problem within itself. So Jesus does something amazing here, and he is going to give us a little bit of an object lesson. And this object lesson, thankfully, is not like Isaiah in the Old Testament who went around naked for a while, or Ezekiel, because he did all sorts of crazy stuff. He just takes a little child, just like we had this baby dedication this morning, this child in front of all the disciples, so I'm so thankful for that, because he says right here, this is what it looks like to be in my kingdom, Mark 10, 13 to 16, which I'm going to read in a second, and also to serve in my kingdom. So let me read Mark 10, 13 to 16, because I believe there's two points about this childlike humility that I want to point out. And the first comes from an import from Mark 10. Jesus did this twice, so it's pretty important. It says in Mark 10, 13, that they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So here's what Jesus did. He took someone that in that culture was not that important. Obviously in our culture, kids get center stage. And on one level, that's right. I mean, um, I mean, back in the 50s in America, it used to be like, hey, you're at the dinner table, you're seen and not heard. Do you remember that? Well, I don't remember it, but I've heard about that. And I kind of lived in the wake of that growing up. But so like, that was the thing. You're seen, you're not heard. That's not our culture anymore. Now it's like, hey, my whole life is orientated about making this little being happy. And that's, it's like, I'm going to like basically bow down and worship them sometimes. I feel like we're too child-centered. In this culture, the Romans would actually take children and throw them onto the dump. 
The Jews respected them in the image bearing of God, but they also did not value them the way that we value them, which is an overvaluation. And so Jesus, though, takes this child, someone who's not important necessarily in that culture to be heard or have a voice or significant, and he says, this is what it's like to enter my kingdom. And so the first thing I want to say is, like, our culture tells us that the answer to the complications of our life is to get a bigger ego. It's to get more self-esteem, to get more inflated. How's that working? All that does is create the problems that we're going to see throughout this passage. All that does is actually make you more needy for the affirmation that you so desperately desire. Jesus' answer is not self-esteem, but humility in saying that you need to come to God like a child and say, I have need of you. It's a radically different message in this world today to say, you are not important, but you are important in God's eyes, like a kid. You can't do anything for yourself, can't clean yourself, can't wipe yourself, can't do anything, but God calls you to be his child. And all you need is a little bit of humility to enter this kingdom and say, God, I'm desperate for you. I need a savior. I need a father. I need a friend. Please come into my life. So that's from Mark 10. Back in Mark 9, Jesus' point in throughout this passage is actually humility and serving in the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Okay, and so um, this is important because it is true still in our culture because if you're a businessman, like if you're busy about your day, are you thinking about how you can take care of kids during your day? Probably not. And even us as parents, I'll just tell you guys, sometimes I know, from myself and I've seen in others that our kids become an annoyance to us, don't they? Let's be honest here. Let's be transparent. That happens. Um, to be honest, as your community's pastor, the biggest thing that I hear when people are engaging, saying like, oh, could I be in a community group? Could I, is like, what are we going to do with the kids? I think Jesus has the answer. You put them in the middle. You put them right there. They're little disciples. You live with them. They're not an annoyance to be put off to the side. You don't need me time all the time. They're part of the community of faith, and you should respect them, love them, and actually care for them in the midst of being his community as well. I think that this is a stiff correction, and, and I could and will say that this entire passage for me this week has been a, I could just have a confession session of my own childish behavior, my own childish heart, but I'm not going to spend all the time doing it, but I will give one example because um, I think it's important to point out a group of people in the church that we should be thinking about as we hear these words of Jesus. A couple Fridays ago, we had a special needs family night, and um, you know, one of my mentors many years ago said that when you're in the ministry, you need to make sure to do things like go and serve in ways that you're not seen because otherwise you could get puffed up as well. And so I had actually had it in my heart and my mind, like I'm going to go to that thing. I put it in my calendar, um, but I put it on the wrong date. I put it the Friday later. So I've already apologized to the special needs folks over here because I felt so stupid about that. Um, but not only did I put it on the wrong date, I just want to confess to you guys that the Friday night that it was, I did realize after it had happened, I think 9.30 or 10, that it was on that night, and I was just like, oh, no. 
And what was happening that Friday, I'll just be honest, was I was going through internal deliberations about some of my own stuff in life and, my, and where I'm at and, and processing various things. And honestly, I was at home alone because my kids were out, my wife was out, and I was a little bit self-focused and self-important in that moment. And so for me, it's a travesty, and I repent that my self-focused caused me to forget about a commitment to go and serve people that are very important to Jesus Christ. And I'll say this, that these guys, you know, in the special needs ministry, if we really take to heart what Jesus is saying here, there would never be a want for servants there. There would never be a call from Pastor Rhett to be in children's ministry. Why? Because all of us, if we understood what Jesus is really saying here, would be tripping over ourselves to be in the kingdom and serve the people that Jesus values. I remember I was, when I was in England, our church there, I, um, I was serving as a lead pastor, and we were a young, small church, and I'd have young guys come up, and they'd want to preach and I'd be like, hey, that's great. We'll get there. We'll train you. But uh, you, can you teach in the kids' ministry right now? And they're like, well, I don't really. They, they go away and pray about it. I don't really feel called to the kids. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So over a year, I'm just like getting kind of frustrated with these guys. Like, dude, that's such a like, like nobody feels called. Like I'm a parent. I don't feel called to teach my kid every day with devotions and quiet times and leading them in that. But like I do it because that is my calling as part of the body of Christ and in my family. So anyway, I'm frustrated with these guys. And eventually, uh, as the story goes, I had a couple elders who were also preaching. I was able to do like a team teaching approach. And so I was like, you know what? The Lord said, why don't you go and teach children's ministry? And so I started teaching children's ministry, and they came around. And eventually, by God's grace, they started to teach children's ministry. But that process can be shortened a little bit if we take away the complications of our self-importance and say, Jesus, I'll serve wherever you want me to, whatever you want me to do. That's why I love this guy. Here's a, I just wanted to point him out because, to me, he is the greatest in some ways. Michael St. Hilaire, he's out there right now in the lobby. Dude, if you haven't, dude, doesn't he receive everybody here every single week? And he would never ask for this. He didn't ask for this. But I'm just like, you know, when I think of great, I think of Michael St. Hilaire. I think of the refugees that Noah prayed for earlier. And I think, man, these guys have suffered so much for the kingdom's sake and now we have an opportunity to bring them here as we raise some funds for each family to be provided for. Like, man, that should be easy. Then I think of Monty and this gal, Venoda, who uh, Monty just got back from India from our mission there. And this gal, Venoda, I heard her story. He interviewed her. It was amazing. It's, she, in 2007, she lost both her parents to the HIV disease. And then she found out she had it too. And so she ended up in the Calvary Chapel School, the trust there. And then she came to know Jesus. She got her bachelor's degree. She prayed more and more that God would give her grace. She got her master's degree in social work. She could have gone on and got any job in that culture that she wanted to make good money. And you know what she did? She's back at the trust serving the very other HIV kids to be a model and example to them so that they can see what it looks like to grow in Christ and have flourishing in their life. She could have done whatever she wanted. She took God's sovereignty and said, I'm amongst these children. 
I'm going to receive them. I'm going to receive them. She typifies so beautifully what Tim Keller said. He said this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. So that's the first point. Entering the kingdom in humility and serving in the kingdom in humility, that's childlike faith, apart from the childish complications of self-inflation. So two, childlike faith is also in this passage, the way of humble kingdom collaboration. Look at verse 38. It says that John said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus said, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward uh, to speak evil of me. For one who is not against us is for us. And truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Come on, you got to see how bad they're complicating the issue here. John, first of all, said, John was one of the sons of thunder back in Mark 3, right? He wants to bring the thunder, bring the discernment, bring the heresy hunting. He wants to say, you can't serve Jesus like we serve Jesus. But here's the ironic thing in this passage. The guy who we don't know much about, he's actually casting out demons. That's powerful. That's amazing. And if you look in the context, what, the disciple, what did the disciples just fail to do earlier in Mark 9? Cast out a demon. Maybe that gives a, a little hint about what's really going on here. Maybe it implies that this guy's doing a really good job, and he was really effective, and it's rooted possibly in jealousy that they have for him. Think Old Testament. David has slain his thousands, or I mean, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, right? Think this idea. They're seeing something happening and saying, you know what? You're not with us. They don't say, stop, you shouldn't be doing it. They don't say, stop, because you're doing it wrong. They say, stop, because you're not one of us. You're not in our group. That's so much like a kid. It's like, you're different, you're bad. We're good. Don't you just hear these disciples like little kids? And this is what happens in the life, even in the local church amongst God's people, is that we can readily turn our preferences into principles and traditions into tr traditionalism. And man, they're full of rivalry, rivalry. They can't cast out the demon themselves. And now they're messed up and angry and tribalistic with these other people. And that happens all throughout church history. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What happened there? Paul has to correct them and say, You guys, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The Corinthian church was propping up Paul, propping up Apollos. Paul the theologian, Apollos the orator, Peter the Jewish apostle relates maybe with them, with some more than others. I don't know all the story about the Corinthian church that way, but I do know that they were dividing the church based on their preferences. That's very childish. And that happens today. People do that. Like, well, I'm Anglican, I'm Calvary Chapel. I'm reformed, I'm this, I'm that. And overall, it's this childish way that people engage that if you do it different from us, you're not in the kingdom. Uh, again, confession session, 
I think last week we prayed for a guy named Jesse. He's planting a church called North State Church. And um, Tucker and I, that happened because Tucker and I went to breakfast with him, heard his heart. We both really liked him and liked his vision for church. And it's great. I'm a little more like, I, I don't know, I told Tucker, you're way more generous than me. Um, I was like, well, he's not kind of, he's not been with us very long. He's not necessarily in our tribe, even though I'm not necessarily always about everything in our tribe either. But like, he's, you know, just, it's like, man, should we really? He hasn't been through any of our training programs or anything like that. I'm glad we prayed for him. I'm glad we said, hey, here's a brother in Christ going to plant a church and serve the Lord Jesus. And we want to celebrate him, get behind him and say, go on, do what you do for the sake and name of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's so many examples. We, I mean, you look at the Jesus Revolution movement that just came out, and that's what happened back in the hippies. The elders didn't said, like, keep those dirty hippies out of here. And some people back then, Chuck Smith and others said, you know what? We're going to change the way we do it for the sake of the kingdom. We're not going to be exclusive. We're not going to be tribalistic. And what is that about us today? What, what would that be for you? How can you humbly cooperate and collaborate? Because yes, being protective on one, level, on one level is fine. Like we shouldn't give up. And I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, give up the baby with the bathwater and don't care about doctrine or anything like that. He's just simply saying, if somebody holds to the truth of who I am, does it for my name's sake. I, I don't know, the Apostles' Creed. One Father, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one church. If they hold to this, being protective is understandable, but being restrictive is totally inexcusable. So, childlike faith says, hey, we've got some differences here. Whether it's differences of speakers, and by the way, I'm super thankful that Tucker has John Whitaker, he has Pastor Tom, he, I, I get up here every now and then. We have this thing that he's cultivating where you guys get to hear from different people, and the good thing about that is that is maturity for us as a church. I love this. I love that we can identify differences, celebrate differences, and not exclude people. And when it comes down to it, we can just focus on doing little acts of service again, giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. This is so unlike our era of polarization, politically, and every other way. This is the way of Jesus. Lastly, um, childlike faith is also the way of humble holiness. I'm not going to read this whole passage here, but in verse 42, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, and I do believe that ties in this theme of children, though I think he's speaking of little believers, all of us as believers, causes them to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck, be thrown into the sea. So briefly, because I don't have much time, I'll say this, that Jesus is giving us another object lesson word picture. You guys know what a millstone is? A millstone was this big, in agrarian societies, big circular rock with a hole in the middle that at least two, three, four ox would have to like drive around to tread the grain. In the Old Testament, Samson, who was this hero of the Lord, was so strong that even when he was like eyes poked out, he actually was able to turn that for the Philistines until he pressed down the columns and it came tumbling down. But that's the picture, this big millstone. Jesus says it'd be better if you are going to cause people to sin to put that on like a dog collar and sink to the sea, like sleep with the fishes, right? 
That's what he says. What is he, what's the point that he's making? I think, of course, as a, a pastor, I hear these words, and my responsibility to uh, be holy and give an example, but I think since he widens it out to all the disciples and all believers, this hits all of us. Jesus is saying something that Robert Murray McShane said. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. What's he mean by that? And that's not just my need, that's your need, your people, your family, your community here. The greatest need is your personal holiness. Why? Because you're in a community. We don't live a life uh, segregated from each other. We're the body of Christ. When one part suffers, we all suffer. Of course, I've heard story after story of this pastor sinned and now I have left the church. That's tragic and sad. I've also heard story after story of how believers sin against each other with rivalry and competition and all these other things, and then people leave the church because of the people in the pews too. The reality is, Jesus says a childlike faith will not take the grace of the identity of being a child of God for granted and say, okay, cool, I'll live how I want. It says, Father, thank you for adopting me into your family I want to live in the ways that show the family characteristics, and I'll do anything to do that because you're really good. So I am going to talk. There's so many ways that this could be applied, of course, if I had more time. I think it's just Jesus saying here, listen to your dad. Obey him on the first word. That's something I taught my kids. Obedience is on the first word. Not, but, 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 not, okay, what about, it's like, hey, could, not could you, I'm asking questions like an English person, they, that's the way they talk. Could you do this? No. Uh, an American says, hey, go do this, go clean your room. And it's like, obedience is not doing it half an hour later, an hour later, it's right away, cheerfully unto the Lord. Anything else is not. Anything else is our childish complications. You know that kid who just says like, okay, dad, well, we'll see if I obey you. That's our pride. I want to hit at that as we get ready to close up. There's so many ways. I mean, I could say, cut off your hand. Maybe some of you guys ditch this phone if it's causing a problem in your life. Your computer, whatever else. I mean, there's all sorts of things we normally think of when we think of take out your eye, cut off your hand, your foot, whatever. Obviously, not literally. But I want to hit at what I think this passage hits at most clearly, and that is pride. Richard Mayo appeared and said, pride is a big-bellied sin. Most of the sins in the world are the offspring and issue of pride. And I want to just give, a, as, we, as we move towards the end here, I want you, us to examine our hearts. I'm going to give a list of things and say, maybe you need to cut some off. Maybe you need to take radical action out of humble obedience and childlike faith and stop being childish and complicating the situation. Admit what's wrong in your heart like I need to. Here's what he says. He gives a list. Covetousness. A sin of pride because you believe you deserve something more than others. Ungodly ambition. A sin of pride because you believe you are most qualified and surely no one else should be preferred over me because that's an insult to my worth. Boasting, pride, because everyone should know who you are, what you've accomplished. Contention, pride, because in picking fights, you feel superiority to those who might be less than you. 
thanklessness, pride, because you deserve everything you get. I'm entitled. Selfishness, because you think others don't look out for you, so you gotta look out for number one. Self-deceit, it's easier to think you're something when you're nothing. A judgmental attitude, and this is so true of me sometimes, sadly. The errors of others are more serious than your own. Yes, I have issues, but they have issues. Gossip, because you look so much better when telling people how bad someone is. Complaining, because God should have consulted you before orchestrating the events of your day or your life. And hypocrisy, you just hide the truth in order to avoid shame and accumulate praise. Social media, right? It's what it is. So, Jesus closes this passage out, like I said, with this confusing thing. And all I'll say is this. I think that based off the back of what he's hitting at in our pride and trying to bring us to a childlike faith, he just ends and says that very confusing but I think important statement in verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Listen, he just talked about hell, which I believe in hell, whether the lake of fire is a description of God's judgment and what it's like, or whether it's a literal lake of fire. We believe that we will face the judgment of God one day, and all of our childishness will be before the throne of God. But Jesus, riffing off of that, says, hey, I'm talking about fire. You're going to be salted by fire. Like an Old Testament sacrifice. This is my opinion. It's a hard passage. That you're going to be salted by fire like an Old Testament offering. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through difficulty. Some of the suffering of hell is going to be in your life to purify you. Get that out of you. Get this childishness out of you. And basically then... Have a salt covenant from the Old Testament with each other. Be in relationship with each other. Be at peace with each other. So what's he saying? I I think he's saying don't treat sin casually. He's saying like a dad to a kid, hey, the the stove is hot. Don't put your hand on it. You're going to get burnt. Don't treat sin casually. Be aware that you're going to be refined continually. That's the way you'll be able to make an impact around you in society. And... That's going to happen as you guys are at peace with one another like good kids in unity and in community. So as we close in communion now, here's the really good news. We could take away from this and be like, dude, I am so childish. I am in trouble. And like naughty kids, like, yeah, you might be in a little trouble. Um, But... You could also say, look at the grace of God in this passage because Jesus does not abandon these disciples. He doesn't cast them off. He's like, okay, sit down, kids. I'm the rabbi. I'm the teacher. Let's have a talk. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to help you. And the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and all unrighteousness. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to do and to will of his good pleasure. God will work in us a more humble, childlike faith and work out all of the childish junk because he's our father and he loves us and he's committed to us. As we prepare to take communion, just 
say, Lord, here's all my childishness. I'm sorry. You know, I've been hiding it. I didn't want to talk about it. And say, Lord, here's my humble service. I'm going to offer it to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great opportunity to sit under the teaching of King Jesus. Lord, forgive me, forgive my brothers and sisters where it's needed for our lack of childlike faith and so many complications we create. Lord, thank you for your grace shown through your death on the cross that you're committed in covenant relationship to us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Help us to then want to live for you, want to run from sin and run with you. We love you. We praise you. We're so thankful for your mercy. In Jesus, your name, amen.